Let's take out our Bibles and find Romans chapter 1 once again. Romans 1, if you remember, we're all all the way through in our series in Romans, all the way through chapter 8. But we're in this Advent series using these first handful of verses in this letter of Romans to, uh, as kind of an outline or a launching pad, answering the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Not just what Jesus did, which of course is essential, and that's largely what we spent all those months going through in those first eight chapters, but just as essential to the gospel is who Jesus is. You have to have both who He is right and what He did right and why He did it. So that's what we're working through now, leading us up to December 24th, which of course is uh, Christmas Eve. Let's read, beginning in verse 1, Romans 8, or I'm sorry, Romans 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. We will end our reading there. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, we need Your grace now as we approach Your Word and this specific aspect of a worship service, which includes teaching and exhortation, preaching, And that has fallen to me and your providence this morning to do that. And so I want to ask specifically for the Spirit's gifting and help and empowerment to serve you in this way so that it is helpful to your people. And I ask that the Spirit would be active in the hearts and minds of everyone here and those watching online. So we ask for this in the name of Jesus, amen. So three things, and again, using verses as an outline that we're drawing out here about the person of Jesus. Jesus is God, or as we began to look at last time, you notice he says it's the gospel, verse 3, concerning his Son, the Son of God. And then again in verse 4, he is the Son of God in power. What does it mean to say that Jesus is the Son of God? And we began to show last time it means nothing less than that Jesus is God, that He is truly God. But also He is King, that's our second heading, or Christ, that's coming from Christ, or Christ or Messiah in the mind of the Jew and as promised in the Old Testament Scriptures would be that Jesus is a King. He is the king. The Bible calls him the king of kings. So the king over all those kinging, and that's what we'll begin looking at next week. And then he is Lord. You'll notice that in verse, at the end of verse 4, we profess this as a church, that Jesus Christ is our Lord. And we'll spend time talking about what exactly that means from the Scriptures and how important it is that Jesus Himself has that title as Lord. So these are our three headings. Jesus is God and Jesus is the Christ King and Jesus 
is Lord. Now, before I dive into and continuing from where we left off last time on the fact that Jesus is God and we're going to this time like really show scriptures that detail that and explain that clearly, I want you to think about these three uh, titles or descriptors of who Jesus is. He is God, He is King, and He is Lord. And there is something very important that all three of those share in common. All three of those. The fact that Jesus is God and and that He is King and that He is Lord share this in, in common, that they all give to Him absolute and ultimate and sovereign authority. When you think of who Jesus is, you need to think about the one who possesses in himself absolute sovereign authority. Over what, you might ask? Well, over everything and everyone and everywhere. Jesus bears absolute sovereign authority. As a matter of fact, in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, it says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So if you scoured all heaven and earth, looking for every form of authority that you could find, Jesus says, I am the one who has been given all authority in heaven and in earth. Go therefore, listen, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus has absolute authority. Discipleship is about teaching disciples to obey and submit to that authority. And not just on Sunday. Not just when they're around other Christians. But over every area of their life. True discipleship is acknowledging and recognizing Jesus is God. And Jesus is King. And Jesus is Lord. And that means all authority in heaven and earth is granted to Him. And I am one under His authority. That's true discipleship. There's no other kind of discipleship than that, according to Jesus. Making disciples? Yes. How? Well, through the proclamation of the gospel, yes. But bringing those people in adherence to the commands of Jesus Christ in every area of their life. I can tell you that it is a problem among Christian people, myself included, to not be completely submitted to the authority of Jesus in some areas of life at some times in my life. To have no problem proclaiming Jesus as God and King and Lord in front of His people and with His people, but in my home not always in such consistent ways submitting to His authority. This is a problem often in young Christians. They kind of want part of Jesus, 
and they like the idea of him and everything and that he died for their sins and such, but then they go about their week as though he isn't God or isn't King or isn't Lord. Friends, he is to rule over every area of your life. I hope that comes out in each one of these messages to the extent that by the time I give the benediction on December 24th, you're so sick of hearing it that the primary application for Christian people that Jesus is God and King and Lord is that you now live your entire life, all of it, mind, heart, soul, will, affections, entertainments, jobs, education, relationship, friendships, money all the way through the following Sunday, all of it under the heading of the authority of Jesus Christ, who is God, who is King, who is Lord. Is He your God? Is He your King? Is He your Lord? Jesus is these things, whether you acknowledge it or not. My question is, could you say with Paul in verse 4, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, my Lord. Does your life reflect the fact that Jesus is God and Jesus is King and Jesus is Lord? I would say to you this, that one evidence, one of the evidences in the life of a true Christian that they've really been born again, I mean, not just a a Christian professing it, it's really easy to say, I'm a Christian. It's really easy to say those things. It's, It's easy to say I believe in Jesus. It's easy to say I'm a Christian, but not just saying these things, but one of the evidences truly are is that you acknowledge the authority of Jesus and you are trying to submit to that authority in every area of your life. And in those places that we all have where there's struggle, where there's failure, where there's sin, you are actively bemoaning those areas like it bothers you that you sinned because Jesus is your God and your King and your Lord and He has the rightful authority over that area and you didn't bow your knee to Him in that area. That should bother you and if it does, good news. Friends, that is a good indication that you truly know Jesus Christ. I wanted to begin with that because I want that to be one of the main themes that run through the rest of these messages. Now, let's get back to where we were two weeks ago. We talked about the fact that when Jesus is referred to as the Son of God in its most purest meaning, it means that Jesus is what we would refer to as the second person of the Trinity, that what we are shown in the gospel way more clearly than what was taught in the Old Testament is that God is one, in essence, three in persons. The triunity of God or the trinity of God, we see this in the New Testament. But that the Father and the Son and the Spirit, who are distinct from one another in their persons are one in their essence and being, so that the Son is God, and the Father is God, and the Spirit is God, you see. 
That is the true confession of the Christian faith. And it was believed right from the beginning and kind of taken for granted until the man we looked at last time, remember his name? Arius. Arius comes along in the 4th century, early 300s A.D., and he's trying to make sense of this doctrine that really is incomprehensible. How do you have three co-eternal, co-equal persons in one essence or being? I don't get it. And then he says, oh, I got it. The Son is begotten from the Father. That means the Son had a beginning. When the Father brought the Son into existence, and remember he started making songs about this, spreading that teaching around. But they, count, they convened, the church leaders convened, came up with what became known as the Nicene-Constantinople uh, Creed that really set the, set the standard for the rest of church history on the fact that, no, the Son did not have a beginning, though He is eternally begotten from the Father, whatever that means, and there's much mystery in it. But the Son as the Father was without beginning, and the Spirit as the Father and Son are without beginning, and they have eternally and co-equally existed together, three persons in one God. But then I said, as important as creeds and confessions are, and they are important, and you should know them, you should read them, you should know that the church didn't begin two weeks ago, that actually this has been going on for a while, and the church has discussed some of these things in the past, and you should be aware of them, as important as they are as Bible-believing people. We want to be just like those that form those creeds and confessions and look into the Scriptures and say, are these things so? Does the Bible teach that the Son is God and that Jesus, the incarnate Son, is God in the flesh. Well, does the Scripture teach that? And so, I want to bring out a number of verses that I think will help us uh, see that it does. And I say a number of them because it would be impossible for me in the limited amount of time in this sermon to bring out all of the Scripture's passages and teachings that show the deity of Jesus Christ not in one message. It would take a series of messages working both Old and New Testament that would build that. And I'm saying that to you because I want to build your confidence in this doctrine. It's not just the handful of verses that I'm going to show you now. It's all over the Scripture. You'll see it everywhere once your eyes are open to it that truly Jesus is God. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. And we're going to begin with saying this, Jesus, we believe that Jesus is God because Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be one with the Father, and He claimed that in such a way that even those who heard Him had no confusion about the matter, He was making Himself equal with God. See, what you will hear sometimes from people is they will say, if they're debating this or saying, I don't think Jesus is truly God, they'll say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Now, it's true in one sense that Jesus never said this sentence, I am God. But the way that the incarnate Son spoke about and taught about His unique relationship to God the Father, gave them the clear impression that He was saying, I'm equal with the Father. 
you should respond to me in the same way you respond to the Father. You see that in John chapter 5, verse 18, first of all. Listen to this. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was even calling God his own father. Listen to this. Making himself equal with God. One of the reasons the Jewish people turned Jesus over to the Romans and wanted him crucified, one of the reasons was because the way he spoke about his relationship to the Father as the unique Son told them that he was claiming equality with the Father, which of course to them was blasphemy. And frankly, if it wasn't true, they had every right under at least the old Mosaic law to have him put to death because that is blasphemy charge worthy of death under Mosaic law. Jesus, when He spoke of His relationship to the Father, He spoke in terms of equality with the Father. They were one in unique ways. You know, it's interesting. We walked through Romans 8, didn't we? And we got to that wonderful part where we learned that we are in Christ sons of God. Children of God fellow heirs with Christ of all these things. And we can say it. We read it this morning in John 1, didn't we? We have the authority to become for ourselves children of God and to tell others, I'm a child of God, you see, through Christ. But there was a uniqueness in the way in which Jesus spoke about His sonship and His relationship to the Father that you and I couldn't say. It'd be crossing a line. Truly, Jesus was the beloved Son of God, that unique Son of God. And yes, we are all then, through adoption, through sonship, through Christ, brought into this relationship of sonship, but we cannot speak about it in such a way that we are saying that we are equal with God or we would be guilty of blasphemy. Jesus had a consciousness of who He was. When he spoke about his relationship for the, with the Father, it clearly implied, and the Jews of his day clearly understood, he was claiming to be God. He would say things like this in the very next verse, John 5, 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Catch this, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. In other words, the Father and the Son are equal in their works. If the Father, God, is doing something, the Son is doing it as well. And if the Son is doing something, so is the Father. We are equal in our works because we are one. Or in verse 21, listen to this, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Every Jew understood something very important. All life comes from God. God is the source and the origin of all life. No one and nothing has life 
unless the one in whom is all life and from whom comes all life has granted it. And they knew that was God. And yet here the Son says this, the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also gives Uh, The Son gives life to whom He will. In His own will, says the Son, I bestow life with the Father. Equal in life-giving ability and equal in will. 5.22 For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, pause right there. Why did God commit all judgment of the world, of both, as the Scriptures put it, to the living and to the dead? There's a day coming, by the way, and a day that God has fixed and appointed in which everyone is going to stand before Jesus Christ. He is the one that will grant Two people, eternal life into His kingdom or eternal condemnation and separation from God forever. That's God's decision in the way He has worked this out. I've committed, says the Father, all judgment to my Son. In the person of Jesus Christ, He will judge the living and the dead, says Paul, at His appearing. Now, why did God do it that way? Look at this. He did it that way so that all may honor the Son, look at, just as they honor the Father. In other words, in the plan of the gospel, in His incarnate Son, who becomes a man, right, becomes flesh, just as we read in John 1, God didn't want anyone to get the wrong impression about Him, that He is somehow less worthy of honor than God Himself that somehow he is just a man or maybe a great man or maybe a a sort of a deified man, but certainly not as God the Father himself. And Jesus said, no, the way this is going down and the reason that all judgment has been given to me is so everyone will honor and worship me in the same way they honor and worship the Father. And then he goes on to say, whoever does not do that, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. There is no honoring of God. There is no true worship of God apart from Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is God incarnate, you see. God's plan in the gospel, which includes the judgment of all mankind through Jesus Christ, is done that way for the specific purpose that you and I would have no problem with. As a matter of fact, would enjoy worshiping the Son with the same level of enthusiasm and passion that we devote to the Father Himself. Jesus knew who He was. God the Father wants us to know who He is. We are to worship Him and Him alone. This must have come as a shock to the hearers who were so steeped in passages like Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 5. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And here is this first century Jewish man standing before them and saying, if you really worship God, you worship me in the same way. That's the way this works. Or how about Isaiah 42, 8? I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other. And here is Jesus saying, I am worthy of all the glory that you would give to the Father Himself. All must honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He was claiming to be equal with the Father and therefore deserving of the same honor as God Himself. This is what makes Revelation 5.13 so significant, friends. In that global worship service that will happen when every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them will say to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, look at this, that parallel worship to the triune God including the Lamb of God who was slain for our sins and rose again and exalted to the right hand of the Father, He being equal, receiving all the blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Jesus is God. Jesus taught that He was God. He claimed to be God. That's why in John chapter 10, verse 30, He said, I and the Father are one. How much more clear could He have been about his relationship to the Father. Not only did Jesus claim to be God, friends, the early disciples acknowledged Jesus as God right from the beginning. As a matter of fact, you'll remember the account of doubting Thomas. Didn't believe that Jesus had rose from the dead. He said, unless I see him, unless I see those nail prints and that scar on his side, I will not believe. Boom, in comes Jesus. And what is his profession and what is our profession? He falls to his knees and he said, my Lord and my God. They knew from the beginning now, this one is truly, right? Like the the centurion, this one truly is the Son of God. When those 11 disciples, we read part of this earlier from Great Commission, they gathered at Galilee just like Jesus directed them. And it says in Matthew 28, 16, 17, when they saw Him, what did they do? They worshiped Him, establishing right then, forever, that this Jesus is God because they understood, friends, that you could only worship God. You can't worship anything or anyone else. You can only worship God, and here they see Him in His resurrected flesh, saying, this one is God, we worship Him. Him. True disciples worship Jesus because Jesus is God. And then the apostles, friends, and the New Testament authors clearly taught that Jesus is God. What we read earlier, John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. If you encounter a Jehovah's Witness and 
They'll tell you that Jesus is a great being and the Son was the first and greatest of beings, but He's not equal to the Father. There was a time in which He did not exist and that God brought Him into existence. You ask Him, how could this be worded such? That without Him was not anything made that was made. If He was made, how could He have made everything you see that was? It's worded so clearly. Not one thing was made that He didn't make. That's the idea. Jesus is the Creator God, Elohim from Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And John is saying, in the beginning, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. And what's glorious about Christmas time, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory is of this only Son, unique, only begotten Son from the Father. Colossians 1.16, for by Him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, that's the Son, He has made Him known. He is the only God, and yet He is with the Father at the Father's side. Romans 9.5, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ. And who is the Christ, friends? He is God over all, blessed forever. Or how I should have said this, by the way, if you couldn't walk through at least some of these verses with somebody who is talking to you about the deity of Jesus, you ought to jot them down or ask for, for them later. These are key core verses that teach the deity of Christ. Titus 2.13 says, We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The author of the Hebrews in chapter 1, when speaking about the Son, says, in quotes from the Old Testament, now, the Old Testament teaches it as well, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever." Endeavor. First John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Friends, who is Jesus Christ? Jesus is God. There's no confusion in the New Testament about this. It's all over. The pages of Scripture. Jesus is God. Now, let me apply this truth to us. <clears throat> First, as I began this message with, because Jesus is God, you must give the entirety of your being to Him. All of who you are, everything about you, given to Him as God because you belong to Him and He is an authority over you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. There should not be an area of your life that you are ruling over, that you are not living for the glory of your God, Jesus Christ, every area of your life. 
Paul says in Romans 12:1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Second, because Jesus is God, he possesses all the attributes of God. The Son is truly God, God indeed, one essence with the Father and with the Spirit, and therefore possesses all the attributes of God, and that is very encouraging to us, is it not? He is all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere present. It isn't as though Jesus is off somewhere, distant from His people. He is able in who He is to fulfill His promise to His people to be with us all the days of our life, even to the end of the age. Thirdly, because He is God, He can and will be faithful to you to help you in all of your troubles. He is faithful and He is able to help. He is not limited in His ability to do anything He wills to do. And He wills to help His people. And He will help you. And fourthly, He is because He is God, He can and we be faithful to fulfill all His saving promises to you. The author of the Hebrews says that he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. He promises to save his people from their sins. It's the message revealed in his name. Name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Because he is God, he is able to do just that. Because he was truly God and truly man, the sacrifice on the cross was acceptable to God. He could bear the weight of the sin of all his people because he is the divine and eternal son. And because he was the sinless man who obeyed the law at every point for his people, demonstrating his righteousness, doing for us what we could have never done for ourselves as he went to the cross as the God-man. And God poured out the wrath due to us onto him. It was absorbed perfectly and completely for us. The penalty was paid in full. The sacrifice itself was acceptable to God. And God proved that. He proved that it was an acceptable sacrifice because on the third day, He raised Him from the dead. And just as Paul says now, He was declared, He was demonstrated to be, right? Demonstrated to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. In other words, He was here in His weakness. The weakness of humanity. Submitting Himself to the death of the cross, but now no longer in that position, is He? Now he is in the position of his exaltation, reigning and ruling over all things, restored to his rightful glory that he prayed in John 17. Now, restore to me, Father, the glory I had with you before the world was. Back in his rightful place as the Son of God. 
reigning and ruling over all things. Friends, I hope you are a worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that you can leave here this week and the Spirit has worked in you in such a way that you say, I am going to live like Jesus is my God. I'm going to honor Him. I'm going to worship Him. I'm going to glorify Him. I'm going to trust in Him. I'm going to arrange my life in the way He has commanded. I hope you can with Thomas say, my Lord and my God. Let's pray. Father, we lift high the name of Jesus now. We praise Him and we honor Him. And we are humbled at the fact that we are about to take the Lord's table, which speaks of His death. And all we can ask is that your spirit would let that truth, that fact, have the impact in us that you designed it to have. We ask this in his precious, holy and powerful name. Amen.
you're in unity right now. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, good evening, everybody. It's five on the nose, so we'll go ahead and get started. We're going to be in Ezra 5 tonight. So just about halfway done th with this book, and uh, some of what we'll come into in the future, I think will be combined. So a little bit in the curriculum I was using, um, it's a little over halfway done at this point in the way they worked it out, and we'll see what we're going to do. And like I said before, I'd like to look at uh, Haggai maybe for a week. We'll look at a little bit that tonight. Uh, that's the prophet that's going on at the same time along with Zechariah, which is really neat to see. We might spend a week or two just going over some general things that uh, were themes in those um, two books, as we'll see tonight in, in chapter 5. A lot of the, the idea behind chapter 5 is the, the use of God's Word to help God's people do God's work. It's really what we're seeing in chapter 5 and how God used those two prophets to do that. So we'll kind of work ourselves into that, and then maybe next week, Lord willing, we'll look at, uh, we'll look at Haggai. So let's go ahead and pray. We'll kind of review where we were a couple weeks ago, and, and we'll jump in. Father, we have to pause now before you and ask for your help and your guidance as we're handling your word. We want to do so rightly, and we want to think about things in a way that would be in keeping with the way you think about things and what you're trying to teach us and say through Ezra. And uh, so I ask for that now, for the Spirit's guidance in each of us, and maybe just as we ponder and, and do some discussion on these things, that, uh, Lord, it would, it would strengthen us and encourage us uh, to continue in whatever work that you have for us to do. And so we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so just a little bit of review from uh, two weeks ago, it was. Uh, chapter 4, what was really the main theme of chapter 4? Anybody remember? If you have a Bible that has like headings, you could just glance. <laughs> Opposition, exactly. So they've, they've got opposition going on to the rebuilding. Where did that opposition come from? And it's kind of a trick question because we looked at two sources, if you will, of the opposition. Do we remember? One is explicitly mentioned in chapter 4. The other we had to go into Daniel 10 to look at. Right. That's right, yeah. So basically what you have is <clears throat> twofold. You had the, uh, what we call, by the time we get to the, to the life of Jesus, these are the Samaritans, right? So they're in that uh, section of the northern tribes. And what they, uh, in that, what was called Samaria at the time of Jesus. And these were, people who were a mixture of original Jews who were left there when the Assyrian Empire came in and invaded those northern tribes. 
So the Babylonian ones were the ones uh, came in for the southern church. And so remember the Assyrians would take people from all over their empire, move them to this location and plant them in. And now all of a sudden, uh, the Jews are coming in here after a, a long, long time that they had been settled in that land. And they see the Jews rebuilding in Jerusalem, uh, rebuilding the temple and, uh, and that kind of thing. And it begins this opposition. Now, you'll remember that uh, chapter 4 is kind of laid out. Uh, it covered a 90-year period that brings us well into the period of, of Nehemiah because it was structured uh, by theme and not by, um, what do you call it, time-wise, uh, whatever word I'm searching for there. Yeah, chronologically, thank you. And so, it's, it's, so it has all this record of those people just constantly harassing and trying to get the work to stop. That goes all the way through Nehemiah. But even in that present time, we see at the end, at chapter 4, verse 24, you see that then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So to some degree, there was success when that, with that initial building of the temple to get the work to cease. And so it stopped in the time period. There's about 16 years uh, where the people just gave up building, left off the uh, building of the temple, and just went about their lives there. And um, we'll look at w some of that problem in a few minutes when we look at a couple verses from Haggai. Uh, let's begin read. Let's just read this chapter, can we? This would be helpful, I think. For chapter five. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo prophesied to the Jews who were in Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the uh, same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani, and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish the structure? So immediately already we're having that opposition come back in, right? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then when we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish the structure, we also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago with a great king of Israel built and finished. 
But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor. And he said to him, Take these vessels, go and put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now it has been in building, and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. So here we already have this Almost, uh, they begin the, the building again uh, because of, or as a result, as we'll see, the main theme of this chapter is the result of, um, as a result of the prophesying, the preaching, the word of God by Haggai and Zechariah. The people were encouraged, especially these leaders, uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua, and they were encouraged to rebuild. But immediately then there is this attempt at more hostility. Uh, but it will not uh, prosper, as we will see in chapter 6. But I want to talk about, uh, before we jump into uh, Haggai or Zechariah or uh, the effect of the Word of God here, let's talk about these two key leaders, Zerubbabel, verse 2, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Jeshua, the, the son of Josadak. Uh, so let's talk about these two, Zerubbabel and Jeshua. Uh, Zerubbabel was the civic leader. Okay. He is actually in the royal line of David, and that becomes pretty significant. We find out later that this Zerubbabel is a direct ancestor of David because he's named in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus. And so from him uh, uh, will, uh, be, will come Jesus. He is a civic leader. If Israel were the way it was supposed to be, he would be probably king. Uh, okay, but they don't have a king there, but they have established governors, given permission to be governors by uh, the Babylonian Persian uh, Empire at that time. Jeshua is the high priest. So he is in the priestly line. He is to be devoted to the temple and its work and all of the things that the priests were to be doing uh, in, at that time. What we'll see is that these two roles, the civic and the religious, had complementary but not identical roles. Each were given by God certain responsibilities and roles, and they were not to, uh, they were to stay in their own lane, so to speak. So the priests were supposed to do their things, their leaders, the civic leader was supposed to do their things. But both of these would point to a future leader to come, who would of course be both priest and king, 
okay? And we, of course, know that that is Jesus. All of these, whenever we're seeing priests, prophets, kings in the Old Testament, these are types of the priest, prophet, and king to come, who is Jesus. We can all see them having their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is to come. The, word, the name Zerubbabel means born in Babylon. Born in Babylon. It's interesting because his name, the name of Zerubbabel itself, is a reminder of the sin of God's people. Here he is, born in Babylon, uh, and by all rights should not be, right? Because uh, they are there uh, being disciplined by God. Um, he was also the grandson of Jehoiakim. And you will remember who Jehoiakim is when I tell you about the story of uh, Jehoiakim. Well, actually, let's look at it. Look at Jeremiah 36. I think this is interesting, actually. Because we'll see a, a very much a contrast between Zerubbabel and his grandfather when it comes to responding to the Word of God. Okay? How did they respond to the Word of God? Well, there's a big difference between Jehoiakim, who is also known as Jeconiah. Okay? Je- Jehoiakim and Jeconiah, same person, the grandfather of of Zerubbabel. So we're going to go back in time here to Jeremiah 36 and look at verses 1 through 3 first of all. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. It may be the Lord is saying, that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So uh, the Lord is instructing now uh, them to, to, uh, to Jeremiah to write down all of the warnings that he had been warning the people about, that the disaster, the impending disaster that was going to come upon them because of their sin against God. And so, of course, he does this. And it was to be brought to the king himself, who is Jeconiah, or uh, again, uh, Jehoiakim, Zerubbabel's grandfather. And if you look down in verse 22, how did he respond? It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the pot before him. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid nor did they tear their garments. So, when the word of the Lord came to this Jeconiah, uh, this Jehoiakim, his response was to cut it up and burn it. Now, as a result of that, later on in Jeremiah 36, the Lord tells this Jeconiah, you will never have a son to sit on the throne of David, which is interesting because he is in the line of King Jesus. But I think the best explanation I heard for the way that God worked that through 
was that actually uh, Jesus isn't a literal descendant of him because it comes through the line of Joseph. And Jesus is actually from only attached in that way to the seed of David. But whether or not that's the explanation or not, God was very unhappy with what Jeconiah had done. And of course, we see that as never a means or a way to respond to the word of the Lord. But it was a picture of really how the people, most of them, uh, of Israel and the kings, many, just the majority of them, had responded over and over again to the warnings of God through his prophets. They did not believe him. They did not listen to him. They did not turn from their ways. And uh, so that is really a contrast to what we'll see with Zerubbabel himself and his response to God's word. It is interesting too, isn't it? The, you go through the, the history of, of Israel bringing in the Messiah, and you even read through the line of people uh, from whom Jesus will come, and you see the mess of these people. Uh, it is just a, a mess. There are people even in that genealogy, those genealogies that were just um, terrible <laughs> uh, and hostile to God and sinful and disastrous. And yet out through it all, God brings the grace of Jesus. So, okay, so that is a little bit of Zerubbabel in who he is and where he comes from. Um. Oops. Joshua, or uh, uh, I'm sorry, um, Jeshua, which is actually the same word. That's why I keep saying Joshua. But anyway, Jeshua, they are, he is a little different. We know very little about him. Uh, what we do know about him is, uh, comes from his grandfather, uh, Sariah, who was the chief priest during the invasion of Babylon in 2 Kings, and Sariah in, what is it, I think 60 other people were taken out and actually executed by the king of Babylon. So his grandfather would have been executed um, by uh, the king of Babylon at that time. You can read about that in 2 Kings 25, 18 through 21. But he was going to, he was priest and from the priestly line. And you had Joshua and you had Zerubbabel with these complementary ministries. Okay. One being civil, one being priestly, working in the temple or will be working in the temple uh, primarily. And their names appear in the pa these passages a number of times. And what's interesting is whenever uh, something in reference to civil affairs or construction are the focus, Zerubbabel's name is listed first. Whenever it is something to do with the priestly work, then it would name Joshua uh, in there uh, first. And this seems to be a pattern to show complementary yet distinct roles. In the Old Covenant era, you had a king or a civic leader, as we have here, a governor, and then you had the priest uh, priestly order, and God had assigned to each. Do you remember the king of Israel who violated the priestly order? Do you remember who that was? And he went into the temple, and uh, he burned 
at the, he did burned incense at the altar as he was not supposed to do. Does anybody remember who that is? No, much past him. Much past him. It'd be time Isaiah. Uzziah. Uzziah was that one. Yes. Yeah. He had done good his whole life. And then in um, 2 Chronicles 26, um, verse 16 to 20, I'll read it. You can look at it if you want. When he was strong, he grew proud. <laughs> and uh, for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. And uh, the, the priests that were there told him, you can't do this. The, uh, God has reserved this for the line, uh, uh, the priests and the sons of Aaron who are consecrated to do this, but he did it anyway. And the Lord struck him with leprosy uh, until the end of his life. So that was not a good idea, but it showed us that you do not have uh, you have to, like I said earlier, stay in your lane with these things. And um, uh, this, as I mentioned earlier, uh, changes somewhat when we get into the new covenant with Christ, who himself is the perfect prophet and priest and king on behalf of us. And interestingly, God's people are referred to as a kingdom of priests. And um, uh, we rule and reign with Christ, and specifically we'll do that very literally in this world, and yet we're priests and representatives of God uh, here on this earth. Uh, it's interesting, we no longer need um, an order of priests, right? We don't need that because we have the great high priest, and now we are all priests uh, in that sense, and uh, we are that royal priesthood, one of the Baptist distinctives I grew up with with the acronym Baptist was priesthood of the believer, uh, that we, know we need no human intermediary anymore between us and God. We have Jesus Christ who does that for us. But I thought of something, and I, I'll just throw this out here, as I was thinking about these, the way that you observe uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel working together is, I think, instructive for uh, us in our day and age, even as we're thinking, we think through, uh, in our own nation, let's say, the, the uh, distinction between church and state. Isn't that interesting? It, uh, it dawned on me this week, too. They didn't see their role as opposing one another, but in an ideal setting, so let's say you could establish your own country, which, by the way, happened here. What you had was leaders who knew the state was different than the church by the time we get into the formation of the Constitution. Distinction between state and church, that God has a role for the state that is distinct from the role of the church. And yet what they understood and which has been very helpful to us as Christians for uh, the 200 plus years of our existence as a country, is that they believed that the church and the state had complementary roles. The idea of a separation of church and state to where the state never did anything 
for the church or with the church or pretended it didn't exist and vice versa was unheard of. They had complementary roles. And when things are going right and the government is keeping things, uh, doing their job, which is basically to keep law and order and uh, punish evildoers and reward good uh, people, and the church is doing their work, and yet when the government acknowledges the God of the church, the laws of the church, uh, of, the, of the scriptures, and incorporates that into their, uh, their own lawmaking agendas and their own system of government, you have a good system that works. But now what we're seeing in our country, I, I saw this video, uh, just the other day, I saw a short video of a, a high school coach, football coach. He held a baptism on the school grounds for some of his players. The pastor came out. These players want to get baptized. He's clearly a Christian. Nobody was forced to do anything. He just had it on the school grounds. People complained about it. As a matter of fact, the organization, um, does anybody know that organization of um, against, it's something about being against the, keeping the church and state separate or something? No, it's somebody else. But anyway, they complained about it. They fired the coach okay, for this because he held baptisms on church ground. As, as, so God forbid that these kids, or school ground, God forbid these kids would like apply the principles of Jesus into their life in their school and on their football team, right? But there's become this situ- the situation in which we live that we, we have been wrongly led to believe that there should be no cooperation between the church and the state. And it comes into play with, in one way it comes into play, if the government doesn't have a God who is the moral authority, then who gets to determine the laws of the land? Like, how do you determine laws of the land, what is right and just and good, if there's no God? How would you determine that? And the question is, well, by what the majority, maybe the answer would be the major, what the majority of people think. But that's never a right way to go. The majority, what would you do in Nazi Germany? You know, the majority of the people thinking one way or something. We need a moral authority and a government that's established in a right way uh, would see God, the one true God, as their God of their land. And that they would understand, though, that they're not the church, so they're not, in, they're not forcing people to, to convert into Christianity, but they are applying what they know to be true about this God and His rightness and His laws into, into their system of government. And honestly, it's really what you had, something similar to that is what you have going on here in uh, Israel. They are not just their own in one sense, they're not their own nation to do whatever they want, right? Because they're still under Babylonian uh, or Persian at this time uh, empire. But they are uh, free in some ways to establish different things and to govern themselves, and that's what you see. You have the civic role and the, and the um, priestly role uh, cooperating together, acknowledging the value of one another and the fact that God established both. I don't know, just thought about that. It's been on my mind lately. So, all right, good. Um, Now, let's, let's, uh, chapter 5, I would say one of the primary things that we need to see about chapter 5 is that it is, 
Hold on, let me find it in my notes because I've bounced around a little bit here. Okay, chapter 5 demonstrates the power of God's Word uh, among God's people for the accomplishing of God's work. What we see in the first two verses is that the reason the people got back to work, the reason they got back to work is because God sent His Word to them. And it was the word himself and the, the word itself and the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah that got these people back to work. Can you see that? The prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who's over them. And look at verse 2, first word, then Zerubbabel and Jeshua got to work. So it was this prophesying, it was this, the word of the Lord from Haggai and Zechariah that empowered the people, if you would, and inspired the people uh, to do what they were supposed to be doing. God uses His word to encourage His people. These two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, were sent to them for this particular purpose. And you'll see this often in the history of God's people. When God's going to do something significant, uh, when He's going to bring revival as we looked at a few weeks ago, and, and He's going to do something significant among people, He sends out preachers and uh, those who are going to be declaring the Word of God. There's always going to be that revitalization centered in and around God's Word. What we need more than anything else when we are discouraged or have fallen into laziness and worldliness, or we're in times of anxiety and depression, we need the Word of God to, to revitalize our souls and to encourage us in the work. And we need to understand that in the Word of God itself, there is power. There's power in God's Word. It carries with it the power of God Himself. This is not just some kind of book with information, like we're looking at tonight about Zerubbabel, and we're, we're looking at tonight about Jeshua and this time, it actually carries with it the power of God Himself. And so the result of this prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah was that they got to work. They got busy. And you see that difference, don't you, in Zerubbabel uh, from his grandfather. He didn't carry on the sins of his forefathers he responded to God's word he they know they had been doing wrong as we'll see next week as we look at Haggai part of the problem it wasn't just the opposition that got them to stop it was like they were willing to cooperate with that opposition to stop because as Haggai will rebuke them or the Lord will through him you're sitting in your own paneled houses while my house sits in ruins and the, the phrase of Haggai is, consider your ways now. And let's repent of this and let's get going. Okay? So, so uh, is, it's the Word of God that brings about uh, the spiritual source of, really, well, repentance and, and strength and renewal and direction. I often think of Psalm 119.25, which says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life 
according to your word. And that's exactly what God did. In, and if you'll notice in verse 2, it kept this word of the prophets kept supporting them. Look at this. It says that uh, they began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them supporting them. Isn't that interesting? So as they're getting busy, you're picturing Haggai and Zechariah preaching, teaching them, uh, proclaiming God's Word to them, and that is actually continuing supporting them and encouraging them. This is much of what we do every Sunday. The shepherd teachers that Jesus gives to the church are supposed to do what I'm doing now or what I did this morning. You're teaching the Word. Well, what is that doing? In part, it's supporting the people of God so that the people of God can be doing what they're supposed to do because God uses His Word to support His people. Uh, we need preaching and teaching. This isn't just me trying to keep job security. This is, you need it, right? We need to be taught the Word of God. We need the Word of God read to us. So important, Sunday upon Sunday, that we understand that God's design in this. Matter of fact, Ephesians 4, uh, chapter, uh, verses 11 and 12, he says, and he, that is Jesus, gave the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Isn't that interesting? He gave His shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So we've got work to do, we've got service to do, just like these Jews did building the temple, building up the Old Testament temple. Now there's a new temple being built. It's the uh, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the dwelling place of God, which is the people, the spiritual house that Peter brings out. We're building. Jesus is using us to build the church. And what does He do? He gives shepherd teachers who teach and proclaim and preach the Word of God, and that supports the people of God. It equips them to do their work. Most of us have probably memorized 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness for this purpose, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the Word of God has this effect. It supports, it equips, it builds up the people of God so that they can be doing um, the work of God. The Word of God encouraged and supported the people of God in doing the work of God, and the Word of God prospered the people. I'll have you turn over to chapter 6 in Ezra and look at this verse and this expression. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah uh, the son of Iddo. It was actually through this prophesying, interesting, that he put that in there. It was actually through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah that they ended up prospering and finishing the task as though they needed the source of their power, the source of their strength, the source of their courage uh, was the Word of God upholding them in the work that God had called them to do. That word prospered is interesting. Um, it shows up, and we'll finish with this, but just look at Psalm chapter 1, another passage most of you probably have 
good chunk of memorized anyway. Some of you do. Psalm chapter 1. If you look in, well, let's just read these first uh, three verses. You have, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, this one is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. That's that same word. What is, bringing, what is producing the prospering effect of the Psalm 1 man? The Word of God, isn't it? His delight in it, his meditation upon it, it's actually sustaining him, it's causing him to bear fruit, he's, he's, he's producing the fruit of his ministry, whatever it is, he's prospering, just like the people of God did in Ezra, through the power of his word. There's a direct correlation and direct between the fruitfulness of God's people and their adherence to, their love for, their obedience to, their meditation upon the Word of God. There's a direct connection between those two things. And this is why you know when you have a successful ministry, and we'll look at this a little more with Ezra in chapter 7, but you have a successful ministry that God is blessing, not just because of the size of that ministry or, you know, it's outward appearance of that ministry, but because of their adherence and honor and preaching of the Word of God, that it is having the effect that God intends um, for His people. All right, good. Any thoughts or questions on chapter 5? Maybe we all need to board a boat to another land and explore another land and start a new country and found one upon uh, Ezra four, uh, five principles or something. I don't know. Yeah, a, a, a compliment, complementary roles of church and state. Didn't work. Well, did they over, did they uh, cross the... Uh, boundary into the church ruling the state or vice versa yeah and that's been the that has been the problem with god's people historically honestly what has happened is they they immediately they they, they don't see the complementary role church state there should be a little overlap they don't see that when they get in control then they see church over state and that doesn't work because god has diff- different roles for church and state and they need to, again, stay in their lane, and yet they cooperate with one another, right? I think that's honestly the way it's supposed to be, ideally. Good. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, for your word. We believe, those of us in this room believe that your word is powerful. We have experienced many times uh, the the encouraging and prospering effect of your word in our lives, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you do continually revitalize us uh, in your word and we pray that you would continue to do that and even this week that we would be in it and meditating on it and so whatever you've called us to do this week we would prosper we ask this in the name of Jesus amen thank you everybody